This is 100 Days of Dante, a podcast journey through Dante's divine comedy, one canto at a time. Join us online at 100daysofdante.com. Let's read together. Climate isn't always something that comes to mind when envisioning hell. Usually our imaginations conjure up images of fire and flames, of burning sulfur falling down from above, but Dante sees it differently. He builds a whole ecosystem into the first stage of his journey through the afterlife, replete with howling winds, dark forests, swampy bogs, yes, fiery pits, but also ice, a whole plain filled with thick, cold, frosty ice. There's an image for you, when hell freezes over indeed. In fact, the further down into hell the poet descends, the colder and more frozen the environment becomes. This is significant because Dante connects movement with God's glorious freedom. And so sin becomes precisely that which impedes movement, constricting the sinner, locking them in, if you will, so that they're unable to go where they want. And the particular ice that Dante encounters when we get to this 32nd canto of the Inferno is a frozen river, one which his guide, Virgil, has mentioned in the previous canto. While looking down over a staggering, vacuous drop-off, the, the Roman poet convinced one of the hulking titan giants at guard atop the precipice to reach down and set the two of them down at the bottom. They're plopped down onto this icy river, which is the final river that Dante will encounter here in the underworld. The movement displayed in this downward thrust once the pair pass the imbecilic hulking giants above the cliff it's a significant step forward in the narrative, which is why Dante, as author, marks this moment with a new invocation of sorts in order to spur on his poetic description. He emphasizes that while ever since passing through the fields of the philosophers in the waiting area before reaching Hell's Gates, he's been marching along a downward slope. But it's only after being foisted down this last high wall that he's finally reached the, quote, miserable hole toward which all the other beetling ridges thrust. Much of the language throughout Canto 32 hovers around descriptions that the journey has reached rock bottom. It's the naughtier of the world, the universal sink that is hell. With this climactic way of interpreting the poet's location in the narrative, his being at the central hole where sinks the whole world's heaviness, as Dante describes it, we also discover in this canto an analogous ripeness in the poet's growth and virtue. The moment of maturity that I'm alluding to, however, will undoubtedly strike one as counterintuitive if we fail to incorporate it within the overall pedagogy that Dante undergoes throughout the entire work. This is because Dante's virtue arises precisely at the point in which he denies to pity the suffering soul that he encounters stuck in this icy river. Let me say that again. It, his growth and maturity actually shows up when he, when he refuses to give pity. Um, now, the, the interpersonal conflict arises due to Dante's absent-mindedness because, you know, he's, he's so overcome with the height of the cliff that they've just descended, as well as with the vastness of the icy expanse before him and the myriad of spirits all stuck in the ice from their waist down. So he accidentally kicks his foot against one particular head. Now, it may not have been an accident, though, since the author muses about whether it might have been fortune, destiny, or will 
that brought him to that particular spirit. And so it indicates that the encounter was particularly fortuitous in Dante's intellectual journey. So when accosted for his carelessness, Dante asks Virgil for a brief pause so he can solicit the speaker's name and identity. But refusing to give any information, the unknown spirit, who has been spitting out blasphemies, continues slinging his rebuke at Dante, telling him ultimately to get lost. <laughs> well, here's where it gets ugly. Dante unabashedly reports that he caught him by the dog hair on his nape, threatening to tear out all the hair on his scalp if he doesn't give his, over his name. But the spirit obstinately holds his ground, and then Dante holds good to his word. He pitilessly yanks out the spirit's hanks in bunches as he yowled. Ouch, this violent interchange concludes with a neighboring spirit but who betrays the one Dante's currently manhandling, giving over his name as Boca, which allows Dante to set down his name for prosperity as the vile traitor that he is. But much more than the merely historical datum of providing the spirit's name, this encounter has given Dante an opportunity to display the growth that he's undergone in the course of his whole infernal journey. The poet began his journey with Virgil as a sympathizer with the various damned spirits that he was encountering. He was pitying their punishments and he was lamenting all their various plights. By now though, here at the conclusion of his movement through hell, Dante has learned better. But what has he learned? Where's the virtue in yanking out the hair of a vile traitor that spits out blasphemies? Why is pity for the damned spirits in hell a display of vice rather than a virtuous love for those who are suffering. The key to investigating these provocative questions lies in the broader framework of the Divine Comedy as a whole. The entrance into hell, marked as it is by the inscription, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, provides an essential way of relating to every soul found within those gates. Namely, they've cut themselves off from all hope of improvement. For Dante, in keeping with the theological tradition that he's inherited from folks like Thomas Aquinas and others, pity is reserved only for those who are yet in a position of hope. But for those, for, namely for those who have entire, not entirely cut themselves off from God's mercy. Hence, pity will be an important motion when the poet will experience in the next installment of his journey, that through purgatory. Although, interestingly, those souls in purgatory that he does pity they tell him that his pity is unnecessary because their punishments that they're experiencing are actually working for their sanctification. But before getting there, it would seem that an important lesson our Italian poet must learn is that sin is ugly and that there is one context in which punishment is absolutely right and good, namely in a place where the sinners have entirely hardened themselves against wanting to follow God's good ways. And here, as we have nearly reached the end of Dante's first book, we must learn this lesson with him before we can journey out through the other side and begin to experience God's merciful purging on the mountain of purgatory, preparing us thereafter to ascend the glorious heights of paradise. Thank you for reading Dante's Divine Comedy with us. Continue the journey at 100daysofdante.com. 100 Days of Dante is brought to you by the Baylor University Honors College with support from the Torrey Honors College at Biola University, the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, 
the University of Dallas, Whitworth University, and Gonzaga University in Florence.